There's a lot going on in the book of Hebrews, uh, but there's one word that emerged a lot in that reading and in the book of Hebrews and in the Bible and is a bit of a key to understanding what's going on in Hebrews and in our lives. Can anyone think what that word was? Blood. Oh, look at you guys, man. Blood. Look at that, hey, blood. Um, I was going to have a gory picture of blood gushing and stuff, but then I thought, well, I don't really like blood, Um, which is a good reason for me not continuing as a medical student. Um, When you read the Bible, and you read the book of Hebrews, and if you've been in the church a while, you'll discover the Bible says a lot about blood, doesn't it? Uh, Blood sacrifices, blood everywhere. If you read the Old Testament and you think about the the sacrificial system, they were slaughtering animals left, right, and center. Blood was being sprayed everywhere. People were being covered with blood. Temples were being covered with blood. Altars were being covered with blood. And it happened all the time. One might say it was a bloody mess. And then you come to the New Testament and you hear all this teaching around the blood of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but if you, uh, if you really want to parody Christians uh, and, and the, the, some of the in-jargon you might you know, parody and make a little fun of, you could say, you know, there is this little phrase that was used as a diagnostic test of Christians in a certain era where you'd say to someone, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? What does that mean? Blood is problematic for us culturally. This whole idea of blood sacrifices, the centrality of blood. I've spent all week wrestling with what on earth this means for our life here in Roselle and Balmain and the inner west of Sydney and anyone who's listening online. Uh, We have a lot of people listening in Japan. I don't know what blood means in Japan or in Canada, or in, like, how do we connect this ancient world with all its blood and Balmain? <laughs> because isn't it true that in our age, in our culture, we, uh, we think that is a sign of a really primitive, violent kind of religion that we have outgrown? And in fact, all this violence is actually part of why many people aren't religious, because they go, religion is part of the problem. It creates violence. Look at all this blood and guts and gore. Uh, We've moved beyond that. Um, So it's been a challenge for me to think about this. I hope it's, I don't know if you're feeling that challenge, you know, the, the relevance of blood, the blood of Jesus. Well, I want us to think about some things uh, this morning, and uh, here's what I want us to think about. Uh, Blood, um, uh, I don't want to think about that. Uh, Blood has um, both negative and uh, positive connotations, so we're going to have a look at those first, and what we're going to look at is three things about blood, right? So we're going to look at uh, blood shows us Uh, The problem we have, it shows us, secondly, uh, power, and then thirdly and finally, we'll look at the results, the outcomes of this blood. So the problem, so blood, blood negatively tells us three things about the world. Blood understood just generally, the way it functions in the world, and also the way it functions in the Bible, tells us three things, right? Firstly, 1.1. 
You can see I spent a week with lawyers uh, not too long ago. We're going to have lots of subclauses and uh, long sentences. Uh, 1.1, blood, as we read the story of all this blood in the Bible, and as we think about blood in the world, tells us, dear friends, that we are uh, deeply wounded. Because typically what happens if you find a whole lot of blood of yours flowing out of you? Is that a good thing? It's a sign that something has gone very, very wrong. And so blood is a sign that we're wounded. Blood is physically, for sure, but this metaphor of blood is also a sign in the Bible that our woundedness is, goes beyond just the surface, but you know we're wounded relationally. We're wounded emotionally. We're wounded spiritually. Our souls are wounded. Um, now, look, I know we don't like talking about that. We're, we live in Roselle, Balmain, and we all, or wherever we live in Sydney or online, and we all we come to church, and, and, and you may be sitting here this morning going, look, I'm the only one who's really wounded. I'm the only one whose soul is bleeding just a little bit today. Everyone else has got it all together. Everyone else is great, right? Sure. No, we're all wounded. Don't believe for a moment that we're not. As a culture, we love denial and minimization as coping strategies for our woundedness. Um, but the truth is, you walk out of here and you walk down Darling Street, you go to, your, go to work tomorrow, and you are a wounded person walking in a city of wounded people. <laughs> and we're all trying to address that in all kinds of ways, aren't we? Some helpful, some not so helpful. Uh, if you're a bloke, how do we address it? Well, we just very often self-medicate. <laughs> and we find, you know, we, 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 we cover over our woundedness with workaholism, with alcohol. Uh, and I, I have no idea how ladies cover over their woundedness. But I just, I know for me, those are the tendencies, right? Find substances, find things that will distract me and move me away from that. We're all wounded. That's the first thing we see with, with the, the problem. And it's a deep wound. Uh, and it's a problematic, life-threatening wound. Uh, the second thing is, um, the blood in the Bible says we're not just wounded, but we're also guilty. So uh, we know this from the Bible that talk about, and in our culture, it's coming to our culture, we can talk about someone's, you know, they have blood on their hands. What does that mean? They're guilty. Because here's the thing, Right? I'm wounded, you're wounded, and it's easy for us in our woundedness to think um, my woundedness is everyone else's fault, they're all bad, and I'm basically good. I'm innocent, I'm good, and everyone else has hurt me. But just a moment's reflection, won't it, show you that every, as much as I am wounded, I am also someone who wounds. <laughs> I'm a mess. I'm guilty. And if you're not, well, you've probably stopped living because there is something about us that makes it impossible for us to not hurt other people. Isn't that the truth? And, and here's what's worse. We seem to have the ability to most deeply wound those who we most deeply love. And we all participate in that. We're all guilty. That's what blood says. We all have blood on our hands. 
We're wounded, we're guilty, we participate in it. You know? Again, sometimes in the church we can, we can become a little self-righteous and we can think, well, you know, the problem with the world is everybody out there, but we in the church, if only everybody were like us, the world would be a great place, wouldn't it? Well, actually the problem is everybody is just like us. And, and we are on a journey with God, but and that's why actually in the, in the liturgies and in the Bible says we're, we're to confess our sins whenever we meet together, to acknowledge we're guilty. So that's, a, that's the second thing that this blood emerges. What do you think the third thing is that what does blood do? If you've got blood spread around. It stains, doesn't it? Blood stains. So blood stains us, which is another way of saying that we are full of shame. And we are indelibly stained by the effect of our being wounded and of our in return wounding. Uh, And so uh, I would like to say to you this morning that I am a, uh, a deeply engaged, profound Shakespeare scholar. But I can't say that to you because it would be a lie. <laughs> However, when I was in school for our year 12, we had a text of Shakespeare that we had to study. Everyone had to do that. And our text was Macbeth. And I don't know, it was great. You know, it's good for a teenage boy to read Macbeth and particularly good to watch the Roman Polanski uh, film version of Macbeth. Blood and guts and gore and gruesomeness everywhere. Lady Macbeth, what's her most famous line in the play? Out, out, damned spot. And you go, what's wrong with her poor little dog? You know, getting the... Anyway, no. <laughs> out, out, damned spot. What's going on there? She's committed all kinds of evil, including murder. And now she is racked with the sense that she is stained and she cannot get rid of the indelible staining on her soul that her guilt has inflicted on her. Now... The Old Testament sacrificial system, which we saw described here in Hebrews 9, is really designed to teach us these three negative lessons about blood. It's designed to show us how wounded we are, how guilty we are, and how indelibly stained we are because uh, this system was one that you had to keep doing over and over and over again. There were three altars on the way into the most holy of holies. You had, to, you had to have blood and dead animals at every place. You had to come in every day to make sacrifices for sin. So really, the whole of the Hebrew sacrificial system was really them going out, out, damned spot. And it didn't work. The blood, as the book, as Hebrews 9 says, the blood of bulls and goats of animals was not powerful enough to actually deal with the effect of blood in our lives, was not powerful enough to give us the healing that we needed, to give us the forgiveness that we needed, and to cleanse us and free us from the shame that we carry with us. So that's the problem. It's a deep problem. Uh, And it's important, you might say, well, why be so negative about this, Mark? I'll say, well, listen, because unless we understand the diagnosis, we make an accurate diagnosis, the solution that we offer is never going to really work. The the problem of a blood, the problem that that, uh, this shows us, shows that it's it's far deeper than positive psychology can cover over. (laughs) You You can't positive psychology your way out of your woundedness or your guilt 
or get rid of the stain. It's, it's deeper than, than moral or religious observances can address, right? And we all know that. Um, I find, uh, uh, here's a great example going on in our world uh, that shows the problem is deeper than religion can address. Uh, in our culture, Western affluent culture, what's the most popular religion amongst people in the inner west of Sydney, of all the major world religions, what do you reckon the most popular is in the adoption of their practices and their sort of idealization that they're all good and lovely? Buddhism. So we love, as a culture, we love so much of what we understand as Buddhism. Now, we have an eclectic pick-and-mix vision of, version of Buddhism, and we love the meditation and the peace and the Buddha. And So when you apply Buddhism really, really rigorously as a majority religion in a country, how does that help you deal with an ethnic and religious minority? Well, you know, if, if you're living in Myanmar and you're a Rohingya Muslim, you know, what you're discovering is Buddhism is not enough to deal with the deep wells of hatred and xenophobia and murder that lurk within all of our hearts. It's there, that's the blood. And, and it can't, like that superficial application of religion doesn't actually uh, change and heal us. So, uh, what will, I hear you ask. Mark, tell us the good news. Well, in the same way that blood can have all these negative connotations and meanings, blood also has power in a positive sense, uh, which we're going to look at and it's going to lead us to Jesus. And the first thing we've got to say about blood uh, is that uh, blood is all about life, isn't it? In the blood of an animal resides its life. There is no life without blood. Uh, I've been present at the birth of both of our children. In addition to our children arriving, what also arrived? blood. You come into the world with blood that is associated with life, right? Let me give you an aside, uh, a little, little lesson on the Hebrew uh, law, Jewish law. Why is it that uh, women who are menstruating and for seven days after menstruation are seen as unclean in uh, Old Testament law? I'll tell you why. Uh, because the flow of blood is a sign that new life has not been created, <laughs> that, that death has come. And if you've been through the journey of infertility treatments and you've longed to become pregnant, you will know what it's like to, to long every month to become pregnant and then when you aren't and you begin to menstruate, you go, oh, that's the death of hope just for that month, Right? Because blood and life are so powerfully connected and caught up and woven together. In our life, in our, blo in our blood lies our life. And when blood is spilt, life is spilt and hope dies. So uh, there is the, the power of life in blood. But not only life, the Bible also says uh, in blood lies the power of forgiveness. So... Uh, Verse 22, look at this. Um, in fact, 
The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Oh, interesting. And you go, well, that's just some weird biblical stuff there. That surely doesn't make sense. What, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to show you my very limited Latin. What is, what is the legal principle behind this? Yeah, lex talionis. Thank you, I heard that. Reciprocity, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If the world is going to work, if our relationships are going to work, then uh, there needs to be an appropriate, if, if, if evil is done, it needs to be met with an appropriate response. Uh, if a life is taken away, then a life must be shed. Now, I'll, let me give you a little bit of a, a bit of an answer to give to friends or even to a question you might have about the Old Testament. Sometimes we, you might have heard it said, and you might have thought this, uh, look, the Old Testament is, the Old Testament law is very violent. This eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is a terrible way to live, isn't it? But what you need to realize, in the ancient world when that was written, this Old Testament law was uh, an incredibly merciful way of limiting the violence that we did to each other. Because it meant that for any particular evil that was committed, there had to be a proportional response of justice, not an indiscriminate, disproportionate response of vengeance and hatred. So in the legal codes and in the practices of the ancient world, uh, what would happen was if you chopped off, you know, you, you chopped off my little finger, well, I'd chop off your arm or as much of your arm as I could get. You, you raided my tribe and you ran off with my daughter and, and, uh, and captured her and took her as a slave. Well, I'd, I'd get my brothers together and we'd go in and we'd massacre your entire village. We wouldn't, you know. So, so what you got, and we see this in cultures all around the world, you get the spiral of escalating violence and retribution. And in that context, the Old Testament was actually a profound legal code to limit the amount of violence that was done. And it says that for the world to work where there is forgiveness where there is evil, then there needs to be a sacrifice made for that evil to be covered over and justice to be done. We all know that in our heart of hearts, we want justice to be done. But you might say to me, hang on, Mark, surely the whole point of the New Testament and surely the whole point of Christianity, uh, surely, uh, surely the God of the New Testament is a God who could just forgive why does God need to shed blood? Can't God just forgive and forget? Well, no. <laughs> no, because there's a profound truth in our experience, the way the world works, that without sacrifice, there is no forgiveness possible. Think about it. If you, and you only realize the truth of this, when you've been deeply, deeply wounded and hurt by somebody else, and then you try to forgive them. Because listen, what happens when someone hurts you deeply is uh, you have two choices. One is you can make them pay for what they've done to you, right? That's one choice. 
And, and if, they've, if they've hurt you, you can hurt them back. If they've uh, stolen your money, you can go after them legally to get your money back. If they've gossiped about you, you can gossip about them and make them pay for what they have done, right? What's the other option? Instead of making them pay, you pay. And you pay the price of forgiveness by choosing to absorb in yourself all the pain that has been inflicted on you and not retaliating, on not paying them back, on not holding the past against them. If you've ever tried to do that, you will know that that is a sacrifice and that you bleed in your soul when you do that, don't you? If you're newish to church here, you might not know this, but I've, I tell, speak about this reasonably freely. Um, my, my father was a profoundly inadequate father. You know, if you had to, if you had to pick, who do you want to have as a dad, you know, you really wouldn't want to pick my dad. Um, and he wounded me terribly growing up uh, in all kinds of ways. Um, I had a choice when I became an adult. And the choice was this. Will I make him pay? Will I make him pay for the way he's treated me by withholding my love and affection from him? By suing him to try and get my mum's money back that he stole <laughs> by smacking him around the head for all the times he was profoundly neglectful and damaging or would I say no I will choose not to I will pay the price of not retaliating of not responding and, and the only way I was ever going to have a reconciled relationship with him was if I chose to pay the price because here's the thing if we make the other person pay what happens is the evil that you do to them leaks back onto yourself, doesn't it? You actually just end up in an ongoing spiral of violence and retaliation. You think, you, you think you've solved the problem by making them pay, but you haven't really. You crush them, you kill them, or you just leave them bitter and ready to strike back at you. And you've corrupted your own soul by participating in violence because it is impossible with our limited understanding to ever be truly proportionate in our response to know what the right thing to do is to pay back evil. So we always compromise. We always participate in evil. So I had a choice with my dad. What do I do? So he's dying of cancer, and, uh, and I've got to make the choice to not hold the past against him, to get on a plane from Sydney or from Melbourne, fly down to Cape Town and go and see him. And every time I walk in that door of his room where he's dying, I've got to say, I am, it, is, it cost me it, and, if, and you know this, if you've ever done this with someone who's wounded you deeply, it's agony in your soul to do that. Like you're, you're, you're bleeding because you're going, all of this hurt, I will not hold against him. I will walk in and I will say to him, Dad, I love you, I forgive you, and I'm here for you. Someone always has to pay a price for there to be reconciliation, for, the, to be evil, for evil to be dealt with, right? Blood always has to be shed. Now, pretty much every religion in the world, pretty much every religion in the world understands that, that God, 
the divine figure, whatever it is, is we are out of relationship with this God. And particularly the ancient gods were very bloodthirsty. And who in every other religion in the world, who has to pay? Whose blood is typically shed to heal the relationship between people and their gods? What's their blood or the blood of animals? Here's what Christianity says. This is what makes Christianity amazing. Christianity says it's not a vengeful God demanding your blood for your evil. What is it? It's a loving God saying, I will give you my blood to cover over, cover over your evil. Radically different, completely unlike any other religion. Someone has to pay the price, but the, the truth of Christianity is God doesn't demand it from us. He says, I will pay the price. Look at this uh, in verse um, 26. Uh, Christ has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do what? To do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. The very heart of Christianity is a self-sacrificing God who does whatever it takes to cover over our sin and evil. Isn't that amazing? The whole point of Hebrews 9 and chapter 10 and the whole point of Christianity is that the God of Jesus Christ is not a God who demands sacrifices from us, but a God who gives himself as a sacrifice for us. So blood is shed, yes, but it's the blood of God that is shed, not ours, even though it should have and could have been ours. What are the results of that? (laughs) Look at this. If we understand... Christianity, and we understand the power of the blood, verse 14 tells us what's going to happen to us. See that? How much more then? So you've had the Old Testament system, out, out, damned spot, relentlessly going through sacrificing blood, the blood of blood and goats, and it hasn't worked. And then Jesus comes, and Jesus is God himself sacrificing himself, his bloodshed, and it says this 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through this eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve or worship the living God? The result of all of this is, funnily enough, one, healing. Book of Isaiah says, by his stripes we are healed. By the sacrifice of God we're healed. All, I mean, this is why I'm a Christian, man. Amongst other reasons, every bit of wounding and pain and hurt that you and I carry with us will be healed. That's good. Yeah. Do I hear an amen? Yes. That's good news, right? We're going to be healed. It's going to be all right. We're going to be forgiven. That's good news. God will forgive you. 
Uh, I got a message earlier this week from a, a friend from ages ago who's been in a relationship and the relationship's ended because it sounds like she's had an affair and it's all blown up and it's a disaster. And she writes me this message and she says, Mark, is it possible that God will forgive me for what I've done? Yes, it is. Of course it is. Here's the thing I learned. When I was, I became a follower of Jesus at 15. I'm at university. I'm being discipled by this guy. And he taught me that we, I was struggling because I said, well, I've been a Christian and I, you know, I, I've, I've sinned. I need forgiveness. I've asked Jesus to forgive me. And then I've woken up the next day and I've gone out and I've sinned again. And I go, oh man, is, is it possible that I could still be forgiven? And he said to me, Mark, Mark, tell me. When Jesus died on the cross for you, how many of your sins had you committed at that stage? Huh, none. So how many of your sins lay in the future? All of them. So Mark, (laughs) Jesus' death is not just sufficient for forgiveness for what you've done in the past, but it's sufficient for every sin you might ever do in the future. Total, free, full forgiveness. Wow. It's a message back to my friend. Total, free, full forgiveness. And I'm going to go back to her and say, and listen to this Sunday's sermon. Thirdly, (laughs) cleansing, the stain is removed. The shame is taken away, is covered over. The book of Isaiah says, though our, skins, though, though our sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow, pure. Imagine that. Ah, I mean, one of the reasons babies are so unbelievably attractive is what? They're pure and unblemished. Like, you know, just you, you look at a little, no, not when they're newborn because they're just normally ugly and scrunched up, but like give them a little bit of time and they fill up and they're beautiful babies and you just go, they're pure, nothing is, now, well, unless they're waking you up every two hours to feed and, you know, but for those of us looking on from a distance, pure, beautiful, life hasn't mucked them up, they're, the elastin in their skin is still perfect, it's all just gorgeous and they smell amazing and they're, and they're unsullied by this world. That's going to be us again. Imagine that. None of the shame and the stain. Just pure, beautiful, forgiven, healed. Now, it's good. Let me ask you a diagnostic. What this does dear friends, is it moves us to do this, to serve the living God. What does that mean? Actually, the word serve there is, uh, it's, it's also the word for worship, to serve, worship God. This is what happens to us when we encounter the, he, the, the, the healing, forgiving, cleansing blood of God given for us. It changes our hearts 
so that we can serve him and worship him. And the shift it makes in our consciences, the shift it makes internally is this, and, there's, uh, and it changes the entire way we experience God. Shall I tell you how? There's only three ways we experience God fundamentally, right? Uh, the first way is we can experience God as fearful, scary. So, oh, there's a God, and he's going to beat me over the head if I do stuff wrong, and I know I've done stuff wrong, so I'm going to run and hide from this God, right? That's the response of Adam and Eve. That's the response of many in our culture. God is scary. God is judgmental. I'm going to run and hide. I want nothing to do with God. I might run and hide in all sorts of sophisticated, rich, and successful ways, but I'm scared, and I'm running from God. Okay, that's one way. Now, I'm guessing none of you are doing, or let me rephrase that. I am guessing not many of us this morning are running and hiding from God because we're here in church. This is not a good place to come if you're running and hiding from God. However, there is a second way in which we can relate to God and we can find God useful. We can find God useful. What do I mean by that? Well, I find God useful when I come to church and I say my prayers and I'm all religious and then I say to God, God, I've done this for you, now you've got to do this for me. I've, I've stayed behind all these years and served you faithfully in your farm while my younger brother went off and spent his inheritance and uh, ran away from you and blew it all, but I've been here with you, Father, all my life and you've never even given me a party Luke 15, parable of the older brother. Isn't that amazing parable? The younger brother, we think it's the parable of the prodigal son who goes off and runs away from his father and messes it all up. But actually the one who's really in, in trouble is the older brother who stays behind and, and has a quid pro quo relationship with his dad and says, I've been here for you, now you'd better give me what I deserve. Now let me tell you, that's the way of religion. And we find growing inside our little souls, a little older brother that rears its ugly head and keeps saying what we, we keep doing to God is we say, God, I've been good. Now you've got to give me a life partner. You've got to heal my kid of that cancer. You've got to help me have kids. You've got to give me a better job. I've been good for you, God. I've been religious. I've been moral. Now you've got to come through for me. We find God useful. And sometimes that works. But actually, it always ends up breaking down. Because God doesn't want to be found to be useful. There's a third way, and it's the way of the gospel. It's the way of Jesus. And that is, we don't find God fearful. We don't find God useful. But when we look at the blood of Jesus, we find God beautiful. We find God beautiful. And it's because I see how beautiful God is in his self-giving, sacrificial love for me that every fiber of my being yearns to be with him and is oriented towards him. And I'm drawn by his beauty. I don't, I don't live to please him in order to get him to bless me because he has blessed me, because he loves me, because he is the most magnificent, exquisite, beautiful being in all of the universe. Every fiber in my being wants to be in his presence and serve him and please him because I find him beautiful. Now let me ask you, how do you experience God? The way to find him beautiful 
is to look at the blood of Jesus and find there your healing, your forgiveness, and your cleansing. Let's pray. Our great God, uh, may you so work in us this morning that we will find you beautiful. Forgive us for when we use you. That is a terrible way to treat you. But we're also prone to it when we get religion. May we be a church that finds you beautiful. And may we be a church that in the way that we live helps our city, our friends, our neighbors to find you beautiful. Amen.